expected this, but the thing that I found when the inmate was jolted and slumped over, it really hit me hard that I had just murdered somebody because that's all you can call it. It's one of the most premeditated murders. It's all scheduled and scripted and and even the coroner's report comes back as a homicide, as a cause of death. And murdering somebody, if you have a conscience whatsoever, it really weighs heavy on you. And uh, that's what I went through on five different occasions. That was Alan Alt. He's a former warden and commissioner of corrections for the state of Georgia. He ran the whole prison system all the prisons, the staff, and the inmates. It's a big job, but the smallest, teeniest part of his job, the part that gave him nightmares and a lifelong struggle with trauma, were the executions. I've forgotten who the philosopher was, but he said, if you're gonna seek revenge, dig two graves, one for the one avenged and one for the avenger. And it's really, How you feel is that you were the Avenger, but you feel like you want to die. You feel so guilty for murdering somebody. Today on the show, we're talking about one of the lesser known impacts of the death penalty. The emotional toll it takes on the correctional staff who plan and carry out executions. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. And today, of moral dilemmas and capital punishment. Alan was born during the Depression and raised during World War II. It was a nomadic childhood. His family moved 17 times across the North and South regions of the U.S. But The exposure to different kinds of people, cultures, and attitudes had a profound effect on Alan. After a stint in the Army, he went on to work for the state of Georgia in the Office of Vocational Rehabilitation. His job was to counsel the mentally and physically disabled and to try to get them back into the workforce. He enjoyed the work, and it was great training for what he was about to do in corrections. But first, he decided to go back to school and get a doctorate in counseling psychology. And just three weeks after receiving his doctorate, he got a call from the Georgia Commissioner of Corrections, who invited him to lunch. So after a lunch, I became a warden and superintendent of a maximum security prison. And it was the Georgia Diagnostic and Classification Center and which took all new incoming inmates. They had a brand new prison, but they didn't have the program. So I was hired as warden and superintendent to develop the diagnostic program. And that helped determine also which of the 64 uh, state or county facilities the inmate was sent to. So I want to go back to the lunch. What happens at a lunch where you sit down, not a prison warden, and uh, end your meal and pay the check. (laughs) (laughs) What happens at that lunch? Tell me. And who were you having lunch with? 
the commissioner of corrections, the head of corrections for the state. Well, he uh, first offered me a brand new house, which was the warden's house, free utilities, free car, and a substantial pay raise. And he explained what he wanted. And I told him I'd never been in a jail or a prison, never been arrested to that point. And uh, he said, well, I'll come down and train you. Well, he never did, but anyway, uh, I went down without knowing what a warden was supposed to do, and but I didn't know how to develop the diagnostic classification center. So, but I soon found after I became warden, there were a lot of other things you had to do first, and that was to win over the staff and uh, the correctional officers and the counseling staff and whatever could undermine whatever you did. So that was my first working order. And and I'm curious this so he knows your talent mm-hmm. from the vocational program that that you have this very specific skill set. Now you have a doctorate in psychology. He clearly sh- schmoozes you over what I'm envisioning as a three martini lunch, although I have no idea. <laughs> first time I ever had a drink at lunch. Yes, it was a two martini lunch. <laughs> And no experience in in corrections, and you now have moved with the new home and the car. Well, before that, you have to understand, I drove down there, and it has four towers, two on each side and one on each end, and there was the main towers before the entrance, which was a tunnel, so they'd have an unbroken fence line into this maximum security prison. And so I pulled in the parking lot and I saw a sign that said superintendent warden. So I pulled in there and this voice from the tower said, hey, you can't park there. That's for the warden. And I got out of the car and stood up and I said, I am the warden. And that's how I started. And you had never walked in a prison. Is that correct? Never, never had been in there, never been in that kind of environment. Well, the Army and basic training was similar, but other than that, <laughs> I'd never been in that kind of environment. So your first time walking in as a warden, and tell me about that. Tell me about walking in, that experience in that first day. I walked through the tunnel and up the stairs, and then there was a visiting where they received visitors, but on the other end was the administrative offices. So somebody was at the top of the stairs and greeted me, and they took me around and introduced me to the associate warden and head of security and some other key staff. I tried met the key people. I went to my office, and it was a big, fancy office and had a, a conference room next door to it that was bigger than the governor's. And the desk had been clear, and I, they finally closed the door, and I was sitting in there wondering what a warden really did. And I got a phone call, and it was from a staff member said that one of the inmates tried to commit suicide. At the time in the state of Georgia, its judges were really cracking down on drugs, even if it was a first-time offense. So Allen had a bunch of high school and college kids with very minor drug charges, getting two to five year sentences for things like a gram or two of marijuana under a floor mat. And one of these kids that got two to five years tried to commit suicide. Of course, you get in there and the, and the old cons are 
trying to make them homosexual partners, and they just went through a lot of misery. When they called me, I said, well, as soon as you have him patched up, bring him up to my office and I'll talk with him. So they did, and uh, I spent about a half hour with him trying to counsel him into saving his life and told him he wouldn't spend the five years that with good behavior he'd probably be out in two. But later that day, I found out not only the staff, but the inmates called him the warden's fuckboy because wardens weren't supposed to help people. That wasn't the culture of the Georgia prison system. Helping people was not the culture of the Georgia prison system. Allen was the first warden in the country with a doctorate. Never before had the job required people to be trained in any type of social skills. But that changed under then-Governor Jimmy Carter. He fired all the wardens who weren't college graduates and hired new ones with a college education. It was a wake-up call to Allen that he really had to work on the culture of the prison, which is exactly what he did. It's amazing to me when I think about the 17 moves, as you said, you really saw a lot of a diversity of the country and people yes. and your education and your training and expertise in psychology really set you up for this moment. So while you weren't prepared in the sense that you hadn't worked in the correctional facility, you you were really prepared for the moment, then you do distinguish yourself as, for lack of a better term, a warden for the people and of the people. So tell me about your relationship and how you approached your relationships with both the correctional officers and prisoners, the people who were who were incarcerated. Well, with the officers, the biggest gain I made, and, and I had been there a week, and they called me, and they'd let one inmate out of isolation by error. And he was behind, in the back of the cell block, behind a, a table with a knife. And so when I got there, they, there was about 20 correctional officers, and the captain asked me, do you want to use a shotgun or a rifle? And I said, excuse me? And he said, you want to use a shotgun or a rifle? And I said, has anybody talked to the inmate? No, no. So I walked down and I told the inmate, I said, we're going to go over here on this wall away from the inmates and the staff, and we're going to talk quietly. We're not going to put on a show. I want to know what your problem is. And we got talking quietly. And he'd been in an isolation cell next to a, inmate who screamed all night and he couldn't sleep or anything. It was driving him crazy. So when he had a chance to get out, he he took this avenue to get somebody's attention. I said, well, I can arrange another isolation cell on another cell block. And uh, I said, if I do that, would you give me your knife? And uh, he said, when I get to that other cell, I'll give you the knife. So I walked back and told the captain to get another cell, another cell block, and then we walked the inmate to that. And he gave me the knife, and that ended that episode. So, of course, that episode went all over the state on how that was handled. 
And then I started going fishing with some of the officers, and then I started the first, we call it then, the riot squad. And I worked out with the the riot squad uh, three nights a week where we kicked each other and punched each other and that sort of thing. They always liked to be my partner so they could kick me and punch me. But but that built a solid rapport. And that group of officers told the other officers I was okay. So then we handled every riot in the county or state institutions for the two and a half years I was there. We never had to use force. We brought the force to settle the inmates down. And then it was my big mouth that was supposed to calm them down and get them resituated. And that's how we worked. It never had to use force. So as a psychologist, explain to me why you didn't have to use force. Like what would be the normal tactic and what were you guys doing differently that worked? Instead of going in and beating heads and that sort of thing, I got the inmates calmed down and then we talked and we found out what the problem was and then we addressed the problem. And it was a much more lasting solution than going in and beating heads. And uh, that just builds up more resentment. And since I had this ability to work with people and, and mainly the ability to listen to people, and they were so glad to talk to somebody that would listen. So that strategy seemed to work. And your relationship, your commitment to having healthy relationships build on trust, right, and respect was not limited yes. to yeah. your employees and the correctional officers. It was. It, talk to me about your relationship with the prisoners, the men who were incarcerated yeah. in your prison. Well, you walk through and talk with them, and I, I treat, try to treat them with respect, and I expected the same, and it worked nine out of ten cases. <laughs> or maybe even more, a higher percentage. Uh, And the other thing is you never show fear. If you show fear, it's like, uh, well, on my grandfather's farm, if a chicken had a raw spot on its back, all the other chickens would peck on it. So, And I never felt fear. I I really didn't, even during riots, for some unknown reason that even when I uh, negotiate out some hostages later on, I'm anxious before, but once I go in, I feel the professionalism take over and I feel cool and calm and, and just do what I can do. So that, that type of relationship with inmates, I was known in other prisons. And I was told this by other inmates and uh, that I, I would shoot straight with them. And that was why it was so important that if you promise them to do something, you better do it or you lose all credibility. It's, like running a business or anything else. To build credibility, you have to be a man of your word and you have to be fair and square because inmates talk to one another and your reputation is based on each individual contact you have. So I would imagine at that time and even now, you know, there's this belief of other, of all people who are in prison or incarcerated are despicable or evil. I imagine you came across a lot of goodness, a lot of brokenness, (laughs) but I'm interested in you speaking a little bit to the humanity, to some of what you saw that 
was good and right because you know the, there is there is good everywhere when we when mm-hmm. we commit to seeing it. So can you address that? Well, of course, police officer, he sees these same people when they're drunk or under drugs and violent. And hopefully while they're in prisons, they don't have <laughs> drugs or, or booze. And you see them sober and you see them under a different condition. Of course, that's what the diagnostic procedure was to see what their strengths and weaknesses were. So you, you evaluate them as human beings. And that whole process was so that we could do what was right in training or work experience in the prison or whatever it took so they could reenter society successfully. So that's how you, I viewed inmates anyway. And there were some that I never wanted to go back in society. I mean, there's only about 1% psychopaths in North America, but there's 15 to 20% in prison. I mean, the Ted Bundys of the world and... Of course, we have some politicians that have that same affliction. <laughs> they probably may end up in prison too. But, uh, oh, the other thing is at that time they were shutting down all of the mental hospitals. And we tend to lock up our deviants. So the prison system was getting a lot of mentally ill. So all the training I had on that worked well with that group. So all, all the same, I mean, they're human beings. And uh, if you went around and yelled at them and, and uh, disrespected them, that added nothing to them going back in society, which 90-some-odd percent were going back in society one way or the other. So I was trying to get a process that would be much more successful than 65% of them being recidivists or committing other crimes after they got out. And that's how we approached it then. Which is so logical, right? So you, you've addressed the percentage that should not go back into society because they're a danger, yeah. but focusing on the large majority, the yeah. potential for their rehabilitation and transformation where they yeah. can come back as um, contributing members of society and not the pattern of criminal behavior, disrupting that, right? Disrupting that mm-hmm. pattern. When Allen was warden, they didn't have a death penalty. It had been declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. It wasn't until 1976 that a law passed in Georgia declaring it constitutional again. And then other states followed suit. Even then, the appeals process and death penalty cases take 17 to 20 years. So for 20 years, Alan never had to deal with it. And I thought about it like most other people. I didn't know whether I was for it or against it or it seemed logical if somebody hurt one of my kids that I'd want them executed. But I had really ambivalent feelings because we weren't involved in executing people at that time. Eventually, Alan worked his way up the chain and was promoted to Commissioner of Corrections running the whole prison system. He did it for five different governors in three states, eventually landing back in Georgia where he began his career. It was then that he had his first encounter with the death penalty. When we come back, Alan is in charge of his first execution by electric chair, and he shares the psychological effects that he never anticipated. 
But first, a quick break. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every story you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. Today, Dr. Alan Alt chose the First Christian Church Richmond Children and Youth Ministries, known for their engaging and faith-building youth programs. You can find out more about them on their website, fccrichmond.com. What are you asked to do? What role do you play? And with what you're comfortable sharing, if you can walk us through what what role you're playing professionally and the experience. Well, my predecessor, he handled it from his office in Atlanta and made others at the other end do the dirty work. But I never, in all my career, I wouldn't let my staff do something that I wouldn't do. So the first when I got a notification that an inmate would be executed at a certain hour on a certain date. I got with the Attorney General of the state and we rode down together. Death Row happened to be at the Georgia Donstigan Classification Center where I had been warden. But they had built a special building outside in the rear of the institution where they had the execution chamber, which was electric chair. When the Attorney General and I got there, first we met with the official witnesses. At the other end of the hall were the victim's family. I didn't let them participate as a witness. I didn't want execution to be a carnival or a vehicle of revenge or that. We wanted to do it as professional as possible. So the victim's families were there, but they were in the administration building. Uh, but I did have to explain to the family why there was laughter and so forth, and just because people were nervous. So then when it came time, the, the witnesses walked out at the institution. We had a bus that took them around to the rear to the death chambers. And then the attorney general and I got in my car and drove around to the rear to the death chamber. And in this room where the attorney general and I were, were also the electrician, with the mechanism that set off the electric chair. And he just happened to be the same electrician that was there when I was warden, so we knew each other very well. But the attorney general had four or five phones that went to the Supreme Court of the United States, the governor's office, the parole board of Georgia, and the Supreme Court of Georgia. Anybody who had the power to stay the execution, he had a line to him. So my role was to be there with him. And then when he said there would be no stay, then there were no calls. And he checked with all these people and they weren't going to stay the execution. Then the warden was also of that facility, was in the chamber. And I signaled him and he asked the inmate if he'd like to make any final words. And so when he was through, the warden stepped out of the death chamber, and then I turned around and uh, told the electrician it's time. Then I turned around and looked at the chair, and uh, 
electrician threw the switch and there was a gigantic jolt of the inmate as electrical charge went through him. And then he slumped uh, over in the chair. He was tied down by his hands and his legs in the chair and had a, a metal helmet on where the electrical charge went through to his brain. And that's a pretty full description of all five of the executions that I was involved in. Except some, he went down and he got towards the end and somebody would call and stay the execution. Sometimes for 30 days, sometimes for six months. So then you sent everybody home and the end met back to death row. And then six months later, you come back and go through the whole thing again. I hadn't expected this, but the thing that I found when the inmate was jolted and slumped over, it really hit me hard that I had just murdered somebody because that's all you can call it. It's one of the most premeditated murders. It's all scheduled and scripted and and even the coroner's report comes back as a homicide, as a cause of death. And murdering somebody, if you have a conscience whatsoever, it, it really weighs heavy on you. And uh, that's what I went through on five different occasions. And we had uh, psychiatric help for the warden and the staff. But I realized later on that none for myself or the attorney general you had talked about one of the prisoners, the men who was executed as obviously there's really no word, but Christopher Berger was particularly difficult. Can you tell me about that story and who Christopher was? Uh, Christopher was 17 when he came in the prison system. He and his partner, they were from Columbus, uh, Georgia, and they were at a bar, and this man came up and propositioned them homosexually. And it ended up that they put him in the trunk of a car and pushed the car over into the river. They were 17. And uh, they didn't have any frontal lobes. They didn't have any executive decision-making. They were 17-year-old kids, but they were given the death penalty. And so they were the first ones named that I was going to execute, and I went down and talked to him at length. Uh, that was a real mistake because they were totally different people than those who had committed this crime. They did have their frontal lobes developed. They did reason, and they did have logic. At that age, they would have never done anything like that. And I realized all those things uh, and I got to know him too well. And that was really, really what was so difficult in executing those two individuals. Uh, the other three I didn't know at all, and I didn't go down and try to get to know them better before their executions. So you talk about how there's so many, so many people. I, I think when you zoom out and think of the million little moments and all of the touch points and the people along the way that are involved in an execution. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and as you said, there's very limited who have the opportunity for 
psychological support, mental support mm-hmm. afterwards. Right. So how does it begin to show up for you, the trauma, and what impact is it having on you in your life as a person and in your relationships? Of course, after the execution, you go home and the next morning you go back and you're responsible for a billion-dollar budget and 15,000 employees and 38,000 inmates and 75,000 probationers. And you have to deal with all the legislative committees. So, I mean, that's a full-time job in itself. And the executions are such a minute part of it. But they impacted me mentally. It's very similar to post-traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, you just you have nightmares about it. You have a severe conscience talking to you about it. And, Uh, Your conscience is accusing you of being a murderer. I mean, literally, uh, you feel like you've committed a premeditated murder. And, you know, a psychopath would be a good executioner because they wouldn't have those feelings. But if you have any conscience at all and you have any feelings towards your fellow man, it just bothers the hell out of you. I've known people who were involved in executions that became totally non-functional. I have known very few who were involved in execution that it did not adversely affect them mentally. Some damaged beyond repair. Even one who, I wouldn't mention his name, but he was involved in sort of a famous execution and later on he became director of the agency he was in. I knew him very well and his career ended. He had to retire early with a DUI, although he rarely drank before the execution. So I've known many people who have been involved that I've talked with. I haven't met any that came away unscathed. And, uh, and I'll give you an example of that. There are two individuals in South Carolina that participated in multiple executions, and these were in the gas chamber. They had both been in the military, and when they were out, they became correctional officers, and they came up through the ranks and became majors of their tactical squads. And as part of that duty, they had to do the executions. I think they did something like 21 executions, and they wanted to get out of it. And they told them they would, if they wouldn't do executions, they'd be demoted. They later even sued the state about that and uh, lost but they both suffered such tremendous cases of post-traumatic stress syndrome that just lately checking on them, they're still not functioning in society, still having a miserable time. The five executions that you witnessed, mm-hmm. the day itself, waking up and going to bed, mm-hmm. I, I, for you know, when I was learning about your story, I just thought, You know, sometimes whether it's work or life, there's something big in front of you that day, and it's the first thing, you know, when your eyes open. And the gravity of that, I guess the question is, when you wake up, when you woke up on that morning's, what was it like, and falling asleep those nights? The first one, I just thought, this isn't my job description. I'm responsible for that execution. So you you wake up and you spend the first, the morning and part of the afternoon 
doing your job as commissioner of corrections, which is a lot of paperwork, usually political calls. I mean, getting calls from politicians who usually wanted something. And uh, I mean, just doing, it's one hell of a job to be over a large agency like that. I mean, I had 15,000 employees. So I, that in itself's a big job. And then you also, as commissioner, have to set the example. And you're very aware of people who are always observing you. And so you have to present not a macho front, but a strong front. And they look at you as uh, the individual who's responsible and in charge of the agency. And that is your job. And I certainly didn't want it to be a circus. I wanted it to be done as professionally as I could. So that that was my mindset to do this professionally. It was in my job description, and I had to do it if I were going to remain commissioner. And then you commit murder, and that finally really hits you what you're really doing. It may be state-sanctioned, but you still are the murderer. You still gave the command. And that really hits you and your conscience. What does the room feel like after the execution happens? Well, the only time a physician is involved is immediately after the execution. The physician comes in, and you go in the room too, and he examines the inmate and certifies that he's dead. And then you're in there when the five officers unstrap the inmate and carrying him into a autopsy room next to the death chamber. Are the families of the prisoner who's been executed, or are their families or loved ones there? On some occasions, they're in the administration section of the prison. Of course, we send up notification that the inmate has uh, been executed. But then you get in your car and you drive 40 three miles to your home. When I, the first one, I had the attorney general, so I had to leave him at the capital and then go home. First one, I had somebody to talk to on the way back. But thereafter, when the attorney general rode by himself, I just had myself. And uh, all you thought about was the feelings that you were going through about murdering an individual. You never knew. I mean, I was very aware of how faulty the justice system is, and you never certain that somebody was guilty. And since the last 10 years, I think the count is up to 140 people on death row who were later found innocent and taken off the death row. So you have those feelings, too. And it's then I read all the research, and the death penalty has never been a deterrent. It's more costly than keeping somebody for life because of all the court costs in 20 years. So then you get down to, well, the reason you're executing is for society's revenge or the family's revenge. I mean, that's what it really boils down to. And I think, um, I've forgotten who the philosopher was, but he said, if you're going to seek revenge, dig two graves one for the one avenged and one for the avenger. And it's really how you feel is that you were the avenger, but you feel like you want to die. You feel so guilty. 
for murdering somebody. What have been the long-term costs for you mentally, emotionally? How has it shown up? Does it continue, I would imagine, to show up? Well, age has helped considerably, but I wrote an article for Newsweek a few years ago saying, I don't remember their names, but I see their faces in my nightmares. And I, it, this was in the early 2000s, and the executions were in the early 90s. So I was still having problems, and I did have sessions with psychologists. I didn't go to a psychiatrist. I didn't want to take drugs for it. But um, I don't know if I drank heavier, probably. I had some relationship problems and later got a divorce. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to blame that on the executions, but it certainly was a contributor. I didn't become a drunk or an alcoholic or anything like that. But I, I would guess that my drinking increased. I've never used drugs and drugs were never around me. If I went to a party and the commissioner of corrections walked in, the drugs went out the back door. So I, I never was exposed to that. That was not part of it. But I suffered a lot of uh, guilt feelings. One of the questions Alan gets asked the most is why didn't you leave? Why did you keep putting yourself through this? But like so many of us, Alan had a wife and a mortgage and a car payment. So it wasn't that easy. But eventually, he did find another job, and he left the prison system for good. That was five executions later. Is there something that still hurts the most or haunts you the most? Well, um, I made a lot of speeches. I made a movie. I went to London and did a talk show on BBC to get, try to get all this out of my system. After the movie was released, I uh, did later during... Donald Trump's last year as president, he was going to execute, I'm sure as a political move, to show he was tough on crime, he was going to have the Federal Bureau execute about 12 people in quick succession. And I wrote an op-ed piece for the Washington Post about how that would impact the Federal Bureau of prison staff. And I knew for a fact that it would. I mean, if you went through 11 executions, one after another, you'd have some real, real mental problems with the staff and uh, guilt problems. Then I became a dean of the College of Justice here in Kentucky and uh, worked with students and faculty members and did go to some hearings on the death penalty in, in Kentucky. But eventually, just by work and activity and the guilt feelings started leaving me and I stopped having nightmares. I even hesitated about doing this podcast just because I didn't want to start it all over again. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you for trusting me. And, you know, I believe that there's someone who will hear this who needs to hear it. So thank you. Thank you, Kimmy. Why do you believe the death penalty still exists in this country? Politically, I mean, it's. I did um, a show for uh, Discovery Channel, and they wanted somebody to do something non-politically on the death penalty. Well, the death penalty is politics. And of course, 
17 states have done away with it. But even today, the politicians have to prove they're tough on crime. And so they're for executing people. But the public have never had to face something like this. They generally think that only the worst are on death row, the very worst criminals. But example in Connecticut, a law professor from Stanford designed a program where he had judges that judged all the capital punishment cases in Connecticut on their severity and, you know, whether it was rape or torture or, or the severity of the murder or if it was just sort of an accidental shooting or something. And they had a, a score for the severity of the crime. Well, only one on death row was in that category. And what really put people on death row was they found that was one DA in a certain county that went after the death penalty on everybody that he dealt with. So it was in every state, it was different factors and the very worst. The Ted Bundys were not the people getting executed. But it, the research doesn't make any difference to the politicians because they still preach punishment in prison, although... The prison itself is punishment, and, and they don't want any programs for the inmates. A lot of politicians today don't. Do you have hope for the future when it comes to the death penalty and executions in our country? I don't in today's political environment, but these things over history tend to run in cycles. So I can see in the future that uh, attitudes will change again and be more reasonable and listen to research. Maybe that's too optimistic. But I would hope, like in Connecticut, did away with the death penalty when they found out the real facts, that an enlightened population would do it away with the death penalty. All of Western Europe and Canada have, and uh, only the countries with despots are still using the death penalty in the U.S., what do you hope people take away from your story? My hope and my writing and for magazines and my op-eds and the movie was really to get some realization of what this is all about. And hopefully the states that have gone one at a time abolishing the death penalty, something like that happened in those states. Some enlightenment got to the legislature and, and, the, and the public, and they changed the law. So hopefully this would continue and uh, other states would abolish. Well, thank you, Alan, for your time and sharing your story and your message. And I believe deeply that your personal testimony in all the places you, you've shared it, including on this podcast with our listeners, will be a part of, of a change that I think we all hope to see in the future. So thank you again. And yeah, I wish you well. Thank you, Kimmy. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Alan Alt. You will find links to his writing and op-eds in the show notes, as well as a link to the movie, There Will Be No Stay, which is now available to watch on YouTube. And be sure to join us next week when we dive deeper into this fascinating subject on A Little Wiser. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard 
of PodKit Productions. And that was John LaSala, our editor and composer. But our associate producer is Tara Daigle. That's right, Erica. And that just leaves us with our fearless host, Kimmy Culp. That's me. And until next time, take care of yourself and each other.